0: let's pray. God, help us tonight as we think about your word and the leaders that our spiritual forefathers had to deal with. We hear so much about politics and leadership in our country, but what a freedom we have compared to so much of the early Herodian and Roman leadership of the government, the Roman empire, and how thankful we should be for the relative peace that we have. And God, we are thankful for the opportunity that we have even in this study to remember not only the blessings that we have, but the challenges that our brothers and sisters around the world, even in China and other places in the news that ramp up that kind of persecution that is so reminiscent of this New Testament problem that that we'll look at. So God, I pray that you'd help us not only to be those kinds of sympathetic brothers and thankful Christians, but let us be the kinds of students that are prepared for whatever may come for us, that we would be resolved to do what is right, to honor you, to please you, to step out faith and stand for you as ambassadors. Even as we read in our daily Bible reading today that you would open our mouths, you would make your appeal through us, that we would call our generation to be reconciled to you. God, we thank you for this time that we have to study each week. Pray it would be profitable. Be with my mouth, and in that I mean guide my words. Let my brain and my mouth work together well based on all that is studied and all that is in your word, and I pray it would be an edifying and helpful time, that it would genuinely equip us at that 30,000-foot view of looking at the whole of Scripture so that we might rightly handle it, and uh, so we commit this study to you now in Jesus' name political setting of the New Testament, I do want to go back that lame chart that I gave you on the worksheet last week and just move through this slowly, forgetting all the characters that really don't have anything to do with the biblical narrative and try and get a handle again on the Herods. You can see even etymologically, the the word there uh, relates to our word hero. We don't know what the word means, but we assume that's what it relates to hero, a, a champion, a victor. And then probably with the word ode back to Latin and uh, a song to a hero. And that was the name that became a family name for these leaders. You need to understand that they are regional rulers over Israel. And I tried to briefly discuss this, but to understand, and I think it's hard to untangle if you don't get this 30,000 foot view, you got all these different people, Romans and Jewish leaders, and then the Herods, and they're not either, it seems. They are regional leaders. Rome let Israel, ancient Palestine, it was called, although that word's fallen out of favor, conservative circles, and rightly so, I assume, for some reasons, but let regional leaders rule, even though Rome was on the throne. And so this was an allowance of Rome. Rome said, okay, we're going to let Herod, as we call him, Herod the Great, rule over this area of Judea and Jerusalem, even though he is not one of ours. He was from Edom, an Edomite from modern-day Jordan. He was a convert to Judaism, at least in his practices and his dietary laws, as I said. And so that gave him a in with the liberal-minded Jews, but not the strict, as we might say today, the Orthodox Jews. He converted to Judaism as best that he could. He couldn't win over a lot of the, the Jewish people in the first century that loved God's word and was looking for leadership from... David's line of course And then, of course, he proved uh, to be politically ruthless. As I said, uh, Caesar Augustus's joke about him says better to be his pig than his son because those two Greek words sound so similar. He was killing, I think up to, I think he's killed three of his own children. So let's get a a list here and and I'll I'll name six Herods and let's untangle those in our minds and see if we can't do a better job than just that quick little family tree that we threw up on your worksheet last. Herod the Great. Herod the Great and there are busts and sculptures of these men. So these are probably very accurate likenesses of who they were dealing with. You remember, well, we'll look at the time frame here. The time frame was 37 BC to 4 BC. 37 BC to 4 BC. Now the thing that you think of in in terms of a positive light is having the treasury of Rome, having the leadership of Judea and wanting to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people that he might have their full support. He remodeled the temple. And uh, if you think in terms of comparison, uh, you remember Solomon's temple built in the 10th century BC, the son of David. If this is a, a proportional chart, I think I gave you this in Old Testament survey last year, note what he did to it. Picture this on the temple mount, on the old threshing floor up there, on the north side of the, of the city of David in Jerusalem. Now, Herod came in and poured a ton of money into this and basically did, just built this thing from the ground up. It's called a remodel. Like a lot of cities that say you can't tear your house, down and build another house. And you see some people go in there with all the money. And they leave one closet and build up a whole house around it. You've seen that before. That's kind of what Herod did here. And we like to think of this then as the third temple, but it's not the third temple. It's still called the second temple. It's the remodeled and refurbished second temple. And from Zerubbabel's day in the old Testament, that's the second temple period or sem- second temple Judaism. And it's still second temple Judaism, even after Herod poured all this money into the temple around 20 to 19 B.C. Uh, it was considered one of the wonders of the world, though it wasn't officially on the list. One of the seven wonders of the world was one of the certainly top 10 wonders of the world. Historians uh, hailed this as a fascinating and, and phenomenal building. The glean of the, of the gold off of the top of it and the daytime on that hill. It just It was a remarkable building. This is the model, by the way. Any of you going on the Israel trip this next summer? Oh, yeah. How many of you that are going? Is it your first time to Israel? Oh, man. Fantastic. Be sure and have Pastor Pete or wh- whoever, I think PJ may be going to Pastor PJ, make sure they take you to the model. And it's great. It's only, I don't know what the scale is, one-tenth or something, maybe smaller. But it's a it's a good size model outside that Jerusalem hotel. And you get a real sense of what it's about. This is an actual picture of it. So Herod the Great remodeled the temple. And you may say, yay, Herod, you were pro-Israel. That was fantastic. But you know, he comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 2 as the villain who it hears from the wise men that the king of the Jews is born and he is threatened by that. And he fears that he's got a rival and people think he's the king of the Jews. Here come these Persians, the Magi saying all that. And so he's got to get rid of him. He's willing to kill three of his kids. He's certainly willing to kill a lot of babies he doesn't know in Bethlehem. So depending on what you're thinking about when it comes to Herod the Great, you should never see him as a good guy, but you do recognize what he left behind. Even if you go to Israel this year, you look at the stones there that are still in the foundation of the way, wall, the corner, uh, the, the steps, the southern steps, the temple. If you go down in the, in the, uh, I assume they're going to take you on the tour underneath the, the the western wall and you'll see stones that Herod was responsible for putting in place. If 4 BC concerns you, that's because I told you Dionysius, many, many years later, tried to come up with a dating system for the birth of Christ. He was wrong. We have to see Jesus being born sometime between 6 and 4 BC. And there are two ways to date, several ways, but two primary ways that historians try to date the death of Christ as either 30 in the spring of 30 AD or 33 AD. And my early days, I've gone back and forth in my research and classes and projects I've had to do, but I I still settle, if I have to, just on the preponderance of the evidence at 33 AD. So that gives you a sense of how old Jesus was when he dies, probably older than you might have thought after three and a half years of public. Nevertheless, that's Herod the Great. Then there's Herod Antipas. And I talked about Herod Antipas last time, and he shows up in our text. Well, First, let's show them up in history here, 4 BC to 39 AD. Now, think through that period of time. If Jesus dies in 30 or 33 AD, he takes over for his dad. He is one of the tetrarchs. You've heard that Herod tetrarch or a tetrarch. And several tetrarchs. four tetrarchs. Tetrarch means one uh, one ruler of four, and uh, Herod was one of those, and he reigned over the area of Galilee and east of the Jordan and what is modern day Jordan now, east of the Jordan River, Perea it was called, and and so Jesus had a lot to do. And think about it. He's growing up in Galilee under Herod Antipas's leadership. He is the Herod of the Gospels. When the Gospels use the word Herod, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're talking about Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, uh, I guess I should make the exception, except for in Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 2. Those, obviously, the birth narratives of Christ. Uh, that's his dad, Herod the Great. So there's Herod Antipas. And I think we're probably, again, because they were such important leaders, uh, these are probably depictions that are accurate in terms of what they look like. Matter of fact, I've seen artists renderings full color based on their busts that are in museums, and interesting, we start seeing, wow, these guys, I mean, we have to guess their hair color and tint and all that. Nevertheless, you can get a little of the personality by looking at people's time. Uh, here's one, Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus. Archelaus was sometimes called the ethnarch. We talked about that in a sermon in Luke. Uh, ethnarch means the, the, the ark, the leader, the head of a uh, ruler of uh, this ethnic group in Judea. So, Herod Antipas up north, Herod Archelaus down south, and that was from 4 BC. Of course, they start at the same time because he's another of the Tetrarchs, known as the Ethnarch, but he's also one of the four. He starts when his dad dies and rules a very short time. And all we get really in scripture, although he's in scripture, that's why I added him, he's only mentioned in Matthew 2.22 as taking over for his father in Judea. Herod is up north. He's down south. Joseph had taken Mary and Jesus to Egypt. Remember the flight to Egypt? and he was going to come back. But when he heard that Herod was reigning in his place, his son, that's Herod Archelaus, then he goes up to where they came from, where they're from, in Galilee. So the fear of of Archelaus leads Joseph to relocate the Galilee. Herod the Great, son Herod Antipas, another son Herod Archelaus. And then there's another son that's mentioned in scripture, Philip, Philip II. Philip, there may be some debate. There's two Philips mentioned or two references to Philip in the gospels and some claim they're different. I'm not convinced, I think they may be the same. Nevertheless, he starts again at 4 BC. This is a third son of Herod the Great and rules until 34 AD. He's way up north. You think of Galilee. Flip your map over on the back. You see Lake Hula up there, up north of the Sea of Galilee. He's up in that region, in the Syrian area, out to the east of that lake, and ruling Trachonitis and Urtaria. That's northeast and west of Galilee. He's mentioned only in Luke chapter three as a ruler in his Herod. Agrippa, the the first. And again, I give you this family tree, but this is where we start to get into the this, this third and fourth generation. He is the grandson, not the son, the grandson of Herod the Great. He starts his reign in 37 AD. He's really a bad leader, actually. He doesn't do well. Oh, that's true. I'm sorry. I want to get Herod Agrippa. And, uh, he took over actually uh, the entire area of ancient Israel in that period of time. Yeah, he wasn't ineffectual. As a matter of fact, he was effectual in his desire to stamp out Christianity. He is the Herod in The early book of Acts. You hear about Herod there who's persecuting the church. He's the one that martyrs James. James is our first book of the New Testament in chronological order because he dies here fairly early on in Acts chapter 12. He also tried to kill Peter, but of course, God delivers Peter from his persecution, his incarceration. Herod Agrippa I. And then later in the book, Herod Agrippa II looks even tougher than his dad. This is the great grandson of Herod the Great. He is the one, I'm sorry, ruling from 48 to 70. And there are some people between there, but they're irrelevant to the biblical story. He's the one that shows up simply called Agrippa or King Agrippa, even though his dad was called Agrippa as well, but he's called Herod in the book of Acts. That's what I tried to say last week. but didn't make that clear enough, I don't think. But Agrippa there in Acts chapter 25 and 26, he's the one that Paul gives his defense of his Christianity before King Agrippa. And he uses that name, King Agrippa, as he's appealing to him, saying he knows the scripture. He knows all the events of Christ's resurrection. These things weren't done in a corner. It's a great study in apologetics, a good job appealing to Agrippa so well that he says, maybe sarcastically, maybe with some truth to it, I mean, you're trying to convince me to become a Christian. Remember that line from King Herod, Herod Agrippa II. All right, now, if it were just the Herods ruling as regional ethnic leaders of Israel, Rome off to the west and your side here, that would be, that'd be a whole lot easier. But we've got something else going on, the Roman governors in Israel. Herod and his family, the Herodian family of leaders, These were the Edomites. They were ruling. They were in charge until they fumbled the ball and didn't do well. Archelaus and his poor leadership in Judea had Rome say, you know what? We're letting you guys rule, collect taxes and do all that. But you seem ineffectual and weak. So we're going to send out some Roman governors. So when you see in scripture various names and you will recognize these names, these are the governors that have come from ships across the Mediterranean from Rome to fix the problem. Problem of the Herods that were failing in their regional leadership so Pontius Pilate is the first one that you know we call him Pontius Pilate but he's a he's a governor of Judea and he is of course the one who presides over the crucifixion the Sanhedrin brings Jesus to to them as we'll see they didn't have the authority to execute him so he becomes the one who is very conflicted about what to do with Christ he can't find anything that seems to make any sense from his accusers and tries to wash his hands of it literally Felix is another one Felix was sent from Rome, so now he's fully Roman, but he's in Israel and he's leading in Israel. He was the one you remember in Acts chapters 23 through 25 that imprisons Paul in Caesarea. And Caesarea was the port, the Roman port that was built there in Israel, and there was a road from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and that's the road. And there's a dramatic story, obviously, in getting Paul there from Jerusalem. He's imprisoned. Felix puts him in jail for two years, where he's writing letters. Festus was the other governor. So we had Pilate was one of the appointed Roman governors, Felix, and Festus. Festus was the one. You remember Paul is responding to him because Festus breaks out and says, uh, your great learning has driven you mad when he's talking about the resurrection. Of course, the Roman isn't going to have any interest in the prophecies of the resurrection from the book of Isaiah. And so he says, you're out of of your mind. And he responds again by saying these words are reasonable, they're rational, they're true. And uh, Festus was the one who spoke up. He sat there with Agrippa. Now, those are the three governors that you'll find in the New Testament. But there's a fourth governor that you should know, Floris. Floris is important because you know extra biblical history after the New Testament. It's going on during the New Testament, but we don't have a lot of information about it within the pages of the New Testament. We have lots of extra biblical information about it. And it all starts with Florus, a Roman governor who raids the temple. Of course, the temple was a place they'd store up their offerings. They'd store up their money. Even as Jesus sat there at the festivals, watching people put money in the shofard boxes that had the horn on the top so you couldn't reach and steal the money and all that money would be put into the treasury of the temple. Well, Florus said, I, you know, I'm tired of these weak Jews in Jerusalem collecting all this money. I want it. So Florus raids the temple and sparks the revolt in 66 AD you remember the date I trust if not we need to remember the date 70 AD because that's when the romans destroyed jerusalem and that destruction of jerusalem in 70 AD was a response to the revolt of the jews that started in 66 AD and that was sparked by florus who was just like festus felix, felix and pontius pilate given authority over this region ruling over the the jews and he ends up taking the money out of the temple sparks a uh, collapse of the jewish nation as we know it actually to 135 i guess there was one more last gasp of israel as a nation and rome put that down in 135 a.d from that time on we have not had a state of israel until our parents life or your life if you're older than me 1940s now we have israel back in the nation all apart i believe a biblical prophecy of that All of that was prophesied in Scripture. So those are the Roman government. Now, you're saying, okay, but there's a bunch of other Roman leaders. Yeah, there are, but they're way out in Rome. But they're important, and they have a big bearing on what's going on in the New Testament. Paul, you remember, who's there. Think about this. He's there because you've got a Roman governor from Rome who's there to try and shore up the poor leadership of the Herodian family. He imprisons Paul in Caesarea. He has a trial. Paul appeals to Caesar, He's appealing to the Roman emperor, and he ends up having to go there. Part of the Book of Acts is getting him to Rome. Remember the story? We'll get to that in the Book of Acts. But all of that is because the Roman emperors certainly had a uh, very big part in all this. You want to use a lot of authority over what was going on in their test. I don't know. They, these are the kings of Rome to use words we're more used to. The, the emperors, the rulers over an expanding empire. Of course, they were during the intertestamental period, trouncing the Grecian empire, and so they were obviously the people in charge. They're called Caesar. Caesars after Julius Caesar, which was the family name. And so a lot of these throughout scripture, like the first one on our chart, you know him as Caesar Augustus, Octavian is also So Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus is the first one that we want to consider in the biblical narrative because it's under his leadership that Jesus is born. So let's get some dates for him. 27 BC to 14 AD. There's a big span. Now remember Herod, the regional convert to Judaism from Edom, he's ruling until 4 BC, Caesar Augustus all the way until 14 AD. Jesus was born under his reign. In Luke chapter 2, every Christmas you he heard the kids recite the narrative of Christ's birth from Luke 2, and his name always comes up, along with some other leaders we've tried to untangle in the past. Now, the one that was important on the throne during Jesus's ministry is Tiberius. Tiberius, of course, if he dies in, um, yeah, if uh, Augustus dies in 14 AD and Jesus was born in 4 BC or maybe 5 BC you can see it's not yet to his public ministry but Tiberius he reigns from 14 AD to 37 AD and this is the prime time during Jesus's ministry as a matter of fact when they come and bring a coin and say whose inscription is on this we preached on this not too long ago in in Luke and they say well you know it's the emperor it's the it's Caesar and he says give to Caesar what Caesar well the coins minted in that time though there's a little debate among people who are into coins but probably was because... Tiberius Caesar it's called. Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Caesar, Jesus does his ministry during his leadership. Yes, he's off in Rome, but all his rules are to stand during his time, during his life, Tiberius in charge of the world. Caligula is the next Roman emperor of interest to us, 37 AD to 41 AD. This is important because we're gearing up for the destruction of Jerusalem. It's eventually going to come. So there's the, there's the Judaistic aspect of it, is how is Rome dealing with with, with the Jews and Israel. And then you've got the birth of the church, this Jewish and Gentile movement. And both of these are a problem for, for both groups, for the early Christian church and for the Jews. And that is, if you're gonna erect a statue of yourself in Jerusalem, in the temple arena, the temple compound, because you wanna be worshiped, that is gonna cause a lot of problems. And it was the sparking of a lot of just ongoing and pounding persecution, not only of the Christian, but ramped up to the extermination of the Jewish state until our modern age. Now get ready for Claudius's sculpture. He was into hair apparently, but Claudius was working it there. Most of these by the way were so into sexual perversion they were, I mean, I, I know we're not doing all that great in American democracy when it comes to the sexual ethics of our leaders, but it was far, far worse in the uh, the Roman Senate, in the uh, palace of the emperor. I don't know why I said that when I get a look at him like that, but nevertheless, from 41 to 54 he is expelling All of the Jews from Rome, and how that intersects with the biblical story is the story of Aquila and Priscilla having been expelled as part of the expelling of the Jews out of Rome. Now, the Jews are expelled out of Rome. There was a big quarter, Jewish quarter in Rome. There was a lot of Jews that lived in Rome. I don't know how that would pair. I know there was more Jews in Alexandria and lots in Antioch. Nevertheless, the Jews were expelled, but the one you probably remember is Nero. There was an expulsion not of the Jews, but an expulsion of the Christians under Nero's reign. And Nero, I hope you understand, was a really bad guy. He was the guy, not just that he was a liar, there was the fire in Rome, he, he, he blamed the Christians for it, and this was the guy, I've talked about his sexual ethics from the pulpit and sermons where we've dealt with Herod. When you hear of passages in the New Testament like Peter talking about to honor the king, uh, the king in Peter's day, and you can see it is right when the epistles are being written, is Nero, and Nero is burning Christians in his garden, dipping the tar. he's blaming disasters on the Christians, and he is notoriously evil. Not to mention, he's dressing up young boys as women in the palace and marrying them. It's just a really bad time, obviously. And though there's some debate about this, it's probably 90% certain that Peter and Paul were both martyred under Nero's leadership. Cruel reign. Vespasian is a rough-looking, weathered guy, plus his nose got chopped off of his bust. But he played a very important role, as you can see, in what's happening. That red-letter date of 70 AD, when the Romans defeat the, the Jews and, and burn the, the temple, much like Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century BC, this is a devastating event. Well, Vespasian was the one that set this all up. He was the one who got this going, fought the Jewish revolt that started because Florus took the money out of the temple treasury. The Jews revolted. They, were, they had a hair trigger. They wanted to revolt for a lot of reasons even in New Testament times, they hated the Romans for so many reasons. And now... Vespasian goes and tries to put down this revolt, to to quash, quell this revolt, and he gets called in when Nero dies in sixty-eight to come back to Rome and assume the leadership of the empire. Well, when that happens, he leaves his son to finish the job. And his son is Titus. So his son is fighting before he is the emperor, he's the emperor's son, and he is there fighting the battle, and we talk about the destruction of the temple in seventy AD by Titus the Roman general this, he's next in line to be the emperor, but he's not the emperor until 81 AD. So he's ruling after the events of Acts. We don't have any events that are, I mean, the book of Acts ends before we get to the destruction of Jerusalem. So we don't have mentions of Titus in the biblical record. And he is on the throne before John is exiled on Patmos and writes the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. So he's between the two. Domitian is the last one as long as we're looking at the biblical time frame, because we've got from the birth of Christ, in 4 BC to John writing the book of Revelation in mid in the mid-90s. And so this is the last one we'll look at. He re- reigns from 81 to 96. Now, he persecuted the church, probably responsible in one way or another of having John exiled to the island of Patna. And there, not only is he persecuting the Christians, but as John is there, he writes the book of Revelation, receives that prophetic word from God and writes the last book of the canon. So those are our emperors. Now, if you can just remember those three things, and there's more than that because we've got Jewish leadership. We've got Jewish leadership, but when I think of outside leadership, we've kind of got a guy with a foot in the door in terms of the Jewish customs and the he's a Jewish proselyte and convert. That's the Herodian family, and we've got to figure out those and put those in a chart. Then you've got the governors that are sent from Rome, and they play a role, Felix and Festus and, and Pilate and Florus, and then the emperors that are on the, the throne—all of those fit together to help us understand how the leadership is working, the political leadership during the time of the New Testament event. Now, obviously, Christianity is about the one true God and His solution for our sin. Well, that's a spiritual pursuit for us to solve the problem that we have with our Creator and dimension of our lives that's immaterial. And all of us, even the people that you rub shoulders with every day, have that eternity in their hearts. They are people designed in the image of God, and that's why we should be speaking to them. About the gospel because what they need is something that they're dealing with internally. And every culture has been trying to plug that hole, so to speak, as um, Augustine said, the church father, that our hearts are restless till we find rest in God, that we've got to solve this problem of getting peace with God through Christ. So I want to look at the religious climate during the New Testament times, starting with the Greco-Roman gods. You go back, of course, to your high school maybe even junior high study of the gods of Greece and Rome, I guess you can talk in terms not just of a building that's called the Pantheon, but the concept of a Pantheon of gods, Pan, All, Theos, in the case, Theon, which is God, all the gods. So there was a whole array of gods, which I'm sure you're familiar with and remember from what's uh, later called mythology, but these were taken seriously. The old Greek gods were adapted by the Romans. Romans liked the Greek gods, they changed their names in a lot of cases, and they, they worshipped them. They had a, a sense of deference to them. It became a kind of mythology, but it's on the decline during the times of, of, of the New Testament. But nevertheless, you could say there's a backdrop of respect for the gods of, of the ancient Greek pantheon and the Roman, Greco-Roman gods that we know of even today. Poseidon, Hades, Venus, Mars, about every planet is named after a Greco-Roman god. Uh, in the New Testament, you'll find Artemis and Diana from Acts 19. I'm um, see these references to Paul being called Zeus and Hermes in Acts 14. Zeus, of course, if you know your, remember your hierarchy of gods, he's he's the head honcho, Zeus, Apollos. Hermes. In the Acts passage, they are calling Barnabas and Paul Zeus Hermes. But it's interesting because Paul was certainly the mentor of Barnabas, no doubt about that, and yet they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because Hermes was the mouthpiece of the gods and Paul was the preacher. So the cat they called Paul Hermes. Uh, And then there's one more reference, and you have to look in your notes on this, but there's a statement in Acts 28 when they're on the ship there, and they talk about the twin gods of the figurehead on the front of the ship. And if you look there, the two gods that are in your notes, because that's what they were called, the twin gods, Castor and and Pollock. At least there's a reference there again to the Roman Greco-Roman god, and they intersect with the Bible. So you come across those, it's good to know where they come from and how they fit into the story. Well, probably more important to the early church and studying the early church and how you had a rising kind of, of religious system, if you will, or at least an underlying sense of deity. It didn't come from the Greco-Romans gods in, in any ramped up way, because that's declining during the days of New Testament. What's ramping up is certainly the Roman Emperor worship. The Emperor was considered, even back before New Testament times, the high priest of the gods, of the pantheon of the of the of the gods, either in the Greek society or the reef modeled Roman Pantheon. So the the emperor, if you're the number one guy, you are like the high priest in the Jewish faith to connect with God. And they saw themselves that way. And eventually they started to equate themselves with divinity. Usually that took place after their death. When someone died, one of the first things they did is like at their funeral. You saw McCain's funeral recently and just the outpouring of all this attention. Well, if the head honcho in Rome dies, that's when you now declare him and respect him and honor him and worship him as deity after his death. Nero, who was one of the most cruel persecutors of the church during New Testament times, claimed that he was a god prior to his death. He named himself God, and that certainly ramped up the pressure for people to say, okay, our god, our deity, our, our high priest is now divine, and you need to worship. Of course, all emperor worship was repugnant to the church. It was also repugnant to the Jews. The persecution of the church was ramped up because of that, and so it was toward the Jews, because neither the Jews nor the Christians were going to worship the emperor. Now, the simple way you did that, even when you were in New Testament times, is being made by the Romans in Roman provinces to come and take a pinch of incense and to burn it every year in front of the Roman officials and the Roman soldiers and say that Caesar is Lord. Now, that can have a lot of meanings when you use the word kurios for Lord, but knowing the background of the emperor worship that was so prevalent and increasing, no one could just, say, Caesar's the boss, or Caesar's the the guy, or Caesar's the the ruler, you were making a theological statement, and the Christians refused to do that, and because of that, they were being systematically, systemically persecuted. Roman emperor worship, that's important. Letter C, there's many mystery religions. If you do read about the the cultists, the, the systematized religious teachings of the first century, there is another group of sensitive people that are looking for some kind of personal, existential, experiential connection connection with deity. And so there was a whole host of those kinds of of options for you that went beyond the Greco-Roman pantheon. They had nothing to do with emperor worship, but you could join a group that had its secret rites and ceremonies where you would have this sense of your personal God that you would pray to, and it would help you through your hard times, or it would comfort you in your fears. Or if you were sick, you could pray to these gods and, and seek some kind of relation. Now, there's no direct references to these things, but they were usually highly emotive. They were emotional. They were experiential. And I certainly would suggest that what we're seeing in the church at Corinth was this move toward this kinds of experiential concern that has overtaken the church. And I think there's a lot of the ecstatic utterance that's described in Romans chapters 12 through 14 that are a bleed over of what you know is going on in Corinth and plenty of other cities of Asia Minor during that day. But there's plenty of them. I don't know. ISIS, I know. I move mean, we've made these some connections, I suppose, in our modern day. Dionysus. Anyway, recognize those. You can look on Wikipedia or whatever and find a list of second century BC, first century BC, first century AD, mystery religion, God. That's underlying. And I do think that's something that creeps up in some subtle ways, even in the corrections of the false teachers in Peter and Jude. But I think it surfaces in the practices of what people were looking for in Corinth. There's Gnosticism, which is important for us to get at least some handle on. We deal with the Gnostics when we deal with bibliology because there's a whole body of writings that grows out of the Gnostic that comes in the second, third, and even fourth centuries that today, guys like Dan Brown, when he writes the Da Vinci Code, is going to try and convince you or the professors that know nothing at Saddleback trying to tell people or UCI or anywhere else, maybe they're teaching it at Yale and Harvard these days, I don't know. They're trying to convince you that the Gnostic Gospels preceded the biblical gospel and that Constantine in the fourth century was the one who got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and established those as the official gospel because that's the supernatural Christ, but the real human Christ was the Gnostic Christ in that procedure. That's just completely anachronistic. That's a timetable that's flipped over. No one who knows anything about the history of these documents or the history of these movements, if they're serious in their scholarship, would ever place the Gnostic Gospels and the writings, the Gnostics, in front of the Gospels. And I would just challenge you, and I've got them, and most of our pastors have copies of these. I just would dare you to read the Gnostic writings and then read the New Testament documents. People that are going to tell you that because they read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code or they're listening to a lecture at class in college. They're completely different and they're based on the Gnostics. Gnostic comes from the word gnosis in Greek, which means knowledge. And what that meant for them was a secret kind of knowledge. And usually it dealt with unpacking the basic dualism, the kind of the platonic dualism of the matter and the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. And And you may have heard about the effects of Gnosticism, but you're gonna find two, Two different groups. I put it this way: there are two expressions of Gnosticism. If you really believe that, and I think you can see the early forms of this even in the Corinthian church. Again, you certainly see it in Colossians. Kind of that secret knowledge and and the underlying asceticism that came from that. Uh, you can see that that was one expression of asceticism, and, and that is that there is a there's something bad about your physicality and your physical impulses, which seems to parallel the New Testament teaching of the flesh, the impulses of the flesh, desires of the flesh. They're bad they're corrupt, but they would take this to the extent that you could never have a good expression. It was such a, a, a an extreme view that there was a lot of deprivation, self-flagellation, a lot of self-inflicted harm because of the view of matter being evil. Then there's a libertinism, there's a kind of, okay, if the physical is bad, we can take it a step further that means it doesn't matter. And if spiritual is good, well then let's just focus on that and whatever happens with my physical is is irrelevant. That's where I think you see early forms of Gnosticism creeping up in First Corinthians. And I think the quotations in the passage where Paul is answering their questions, and he at one point says, and he's quoting, just like he does about you, know, you say it's good for a man not to touch a woman, let me respond to that. You the one the next one is you say, or beat the previous one, the stomach the next is the stomach for food and food for the stomach. Now a lot of people put the quote, the end of the quote there. Of course, there's no quotes in the original language, but I think the next phrase, based on what he says next, is extending the quote. Food is for the stomach and stomach for food, but both will be done away with. That's an early Gnostic concept. Therefore, it doesn't matter. And Paul's saying, not everything is advantageous. Not everything is good. And and, and you've got to realize, you, I'm not going to be enslaved to anything. And he makes a series of arguments based on the fact that there were that that kind of Gnostic dualistic concept that it really doesn't matter what I do then with my body because God's going to do away with both of them, which I think on the surface, anyone should be able to look at that based on everything that's promised in 1 Corinthians 15 and know, no, we're not going to be done with the stomach and food. God is going to recreate us. The whole focus on eschatology is a real place, a tactile place, a place where people are feasting and eating, and there's going to be, there's going to be food and there's going to be stomachs, but the Gnostics didn't believe in it. And again, Gnosticism didn't really get fully developed until the second century. but you can see that kind of thinking. As a matter of fact, I can see a lot of that in modern Christianity. And maybe some of you here can recognize there's a certain parallel to fleshly desires are bad. The desire of the spirit is good. If I have a remade spirit and the Holy Spirit, I see the battle. That's a biblical concept. But if you're a full-blown dualistic Gnostic, then you're saying, you know what? I just hate everything about my human life. And and there's never a redemption of a good meal or sexual relations in marriage that's celebrated as a good thing. Those, those physical things never get redeemed in your mind, which, of course, in Scripture, you know, there there's a redemption of all of that. I and mean, we have an entire book, The Song of Solomon. You've got a lot of great statements throughout the Bible about enjoying things. Uh, first Timothy, that God has created things for us to enjoy. So there's an enjoyment in the tactile experience of life that some of our serious Christians in their asceticism fall into the pattern of second century Gnostics. Uh, and then the other side is there are people that say it doesn't matter. I mean, they certainly abuse their theology by saying, you know, God will forgive me. It doesn't matter what I do. It really doesn't matter if I, whatever it is, sexual morality, gluttony, whatever it might be. It doesn't matter, right? I'm going to get a new body. At least that's our Christian theology, right? So we think, oh, I doesn't, none of this matters. Well, of course, neither of those is right. Asceticism nor libertinism are both wrong. Gnosticism kind of was the root of all of them. There are some philosophies, and I see we're going slow again, so I'm going to speed up. In Acts 17, Paul talks about the Epicurean philosophers in Athens there. Let me just give you one word. That's a hedonistic not in the John Piper sense, but a hedonistic philosophy that pleasure is good. Doesn't always mean erotic pleasure, it didn't mean just that, sexual pleasure, but it included that. But pleasure is good. The main goal in life is for you to feel good, to be happy, and certainly we live in kind of a hedonistic Epicurean day that we live in now. If it feels good, do it. That would fit right into the underlying philosophy, the school of philosophy that Paul had to deal with in his evangelism. We deal with it now. What would they say? Pursue pleasure. Just have fun. Feel good. Be happy. It's what you're telling your kids. You shouldn't. I just want you to be happy. Don't be an Epicurean. That's not right. There's a lot more to life than happy. Then there's the Stoics in Acts 17 as well. Paul's dealing with them. Let me give the word there for that. They're they're fatalistic they're fatalistic in the sense that you know what just accept your lot in life can't do anything about it doesn't matter the stoics are suck it up now there's a time of course to pursue pleasure and enjoy things and there's a time to suck it up all of that's true but the stoics and the epicureans had two different fo- two different goals in their ultimate purpose in life and stoics we even use the word today right he's so stoic he's just so he's beyond all that he's above all that he's just like whatever accept your lot in life cynicism was another school of philosophy Coming out of the Greek philosophers, third century BC, and it was certainly relevant in the time that he tried to keep this pattern going, but there's a, there's simplistic and being simplistic, and I guess we use the word cynic, and we know that concept, is just it, it, nothing's worth it. Nothing's worth pursuing. At least the Stoic would try to march on and trudge through it. The cynic was like, everything is is, is useless. There's a, there's a contempt for everything else, for what everyone's doing. The Epicureans would be contempt in their mind, that they would hold con- the, the, the Stoics in contempt as well. That's not a good place. And then there's classic skepticism, which is an academy of philosophers back in the day, held a lot of variety of views. This is the widest one, but I try to keep this pattern going with the word relativistic. And that is that we don't know what's right. We don't know what's wrong. You should question everything. I don't know if we can know what's right. There is that relativism where it sounds a lot like that movement of the church in our generation, the uh, immersion church. Anyway, skepticism at its height is folly. And that was a backdrop for a lot of what was going on in the world as well. Now you can read a lot about those things and how they affected Paul's preaching in the book of Acts and other preaching and other evangelistic efforts in the book of Acts and even the letters of the test, I'll leave that for you. This we can go a little quicker through. I know I have very little room for you there on G, H, I, and J, so good luck with that. But let's start with letter A. Judaism, priests. Now, you know about the priests, all about the priests. The priests were this class of leaders that started back in the Mosaic period. Aaron, Moses' brother, the first priest, and we had entire priesthood that was given the responsibility to lead the people in worship. Uh, They were to assemble people and have them do their uh, ordinances and the the ordinance in their day, which is sacrifices and all those things. There are health inspectors as well. Uh, Even Jesus, he heals the leper. Go show yourself to the priest. That's what the priests were there for. The high priest was the head of the priesthood. And since we're a few days away from Yom Kippur, I thought I at least would say that that's the one very, very, very special privilege of the high priest on Yom Kippur. Yom means day in Hebrew. Kippur means atonement. It was the day of atonement. It was the one day in Israel's calendar where you were required to fast and deny yourself. And the high priest, after making atonement for the sins of Israel, would walk into the room that was only allowed to be in one person one day a year, the holy of holies, and make atonement for the sins of the people. The high priest wielded a lot of power, as we'll see in another body here. The Pharisees, the word Pharisee means to separate or the separated ones. The movement of the Pharisees began during that Maccabean rededication. After they got the temple back and Judas Maccabeus and Simon Maccabeus and John Hyrcanus, that, that whole movement that came after Tychus Epiphanes had decimated and pulled off what was called, at least in Daniel, the abomination of desolation, which Jesus said there was another one coming that was even bigger. That There was a movement that grew out of that that said, we will never let this happen again, which is what we thought they were saying in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel's day, but they were like, we need to get very serious and very strict about the rules. And to do that, what we're going to do is not just be biblical students. We're going to take all the oral traditions of the leaders of Israel all the the the, uh, the priests of the past, and we're going to do what they say. Not only were they strict and fastidious about all the things that the oral tradition said, but they were true legalists. And by legalists, I know everyone throws the word around legalists. For anyone who's serious about obeying the rules of the Bible, that's not a legalist. That's called an obedient Christian. But Pharisees believed that if we did good, we would be acceptable before God. My good works get me saved. That's why every non-Christian you talk to is a legalist. You understand that? Every non- you talk to, you try to share the gospel, you ask them, are you going to go to heaven when you die? They go, well, yeah. Well, how come? Because I am a good person. That's that's the basis of legalism. The difference for them is they understood the Bible. And in understanding the Bible, unlike your neighbor, they know there's a lot of stuff I got to do. And they're going to get serious about doing it. Gonna, if I got to keep the ceremonial law, I better make sure I do it just exactly right. What are the rules about an unblemished animal? Give me all the details. So I need all the oral tradition to help me define that. I'm supposed to keep the Sabbath. How am I supposed to do that? What can I do? How far can I walk? What can I? All of that had to be defined by the oral tradition of the Jews. They were true legalists. In in Jesus's day, there were about six thousand people. The historians tell us that were considered Pharisees. Now, of course, they intersect with the New Testament story. And you had six thousand people join this group from the mid second century B.C. during the Maccabean revolt and rededication of the temple all the way up until the time of Christ. That's a lot of them. And of course, they're focused on Jerusalem because they care about the worship center. They, by the way, are the forerunners of Jewish orthodoxy today. Orthodox Judaism cares about the oral tradition, not just of what was going on in the intertestamental period and through the Old Testament that's outside the Bible, the extra biblical tradition. But now, since then, of course, everything that the rabbis had taught and the Mishnah and the Talmud and all these extra rules that define and codify how to keep the biblical rules, all of that has survived. Why? Because they were the only leadership group to survive the 135 quashing of Israel, that second, that I call it the last gasp of the nation of Israel, before Rome put them out completely. Of course, they were decimated in 70 AD, but they were hung out to dry in 135. And the only group that kept its identity after that was the Pharisees. That became serious Judaism. And everything built up from the Pharisees until the Masorites of the 9th and 10th century AD. So when you see an Orthodox Jew in our country or in another country, as you go to Israel next summer, you can see at least a kind of a, a, a lineage from the Pharisees of the first Of course, there were the scribes. Now, remember, this is not a group. The Pharisees were a group of Jewish people that were serious about the law and the oral tradition. The scribes were a class of Israelites. They were not their own group. In other words, many scribes were Pharisees, but not all the Pharisees were scribes. They were different. Now, in the Bible, we see it a lot. The scribes and Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees came to Christ. That was a group within the Pharisees, and you could be a scribe and not be a Pharisee. And yet, if you were a scribe within the Pharisee, rank. Well, then you were, if you were a scribe within the Pharisee group, then you were a ranking member of that 6,000 group clan in the days of the New Testament. Why? Because they were the highly educated teachers of the law. That's another way they're described. They not only teach the law, they interpret the law, they commentate on the law. They have a judicious sense of, if you really want to know the answer to this question, you don't just talk to a Pharisee, you talk to a scribe. A scribe can figure this out because that's the smartest contingent of Pharisee. There's the sad Sadducees were a lot less in number. I don't have an accurate number on how many there were during the time of Christ, but they were certainly a smaller and not as not as big. And yet they were very much empowered because they were politically connected. They were wealthy and politically connected. I like to think about them being kind of that earthly minded spiritual leaders. And my wife and I were just talking yesterday about there's a group of people within Christianity and, and there's the powerhouses that you respect because they're writing commentaries and they're spiritually minded and they're just, they just want to know what they think and they're super smart. And then there's another group of powerful Christians and man, they're politically connected and they care about the powers of our country. And when the you know Trump's having a dinner, those are the guys that get called to that White House room and think I'm not calling either group Pharisee or Sadducees, but I am saying one is more earthly-minded. Let's fix this situation here in our government. And one is more concerned about the coming kingdom. That may be a bad parallel I just drew, and don't hold me to that. But this particular group goes back to John Harcanus. Remember, John Harcanus was the one that took the leadership as a priest during the intertestamental period after Judas Maccabeus won back the Temple Mount. He became a priest and a leader, almost like Christ. He had this sense of being respected as a king. He wasn't, but he was was ruling kind of as a king, and they were allowing that to happen in Israel. And yet, he was also a spiritual leader. Well, that was kind of what the Sadducees saw themselves to be. They wanted to be the politically connected, politically powerful, yet were God's people and were connected with God. We're as good as any other group, priestly wise. They only believe in the Torah, though, and by Torah I mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That was their Bible. They didn't believe in the two other sections: the Prophets and the Writing. If you think about that in the scriptures, quoted this, I guess we cross-referenced it, 24, we saw references to this earlier in Luke, but I jotted this one down, Luke twenty-four forty-four. after Christ's resurrection, and he says, um, everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, Torah means law in Hebrew, which is more than just the rules, it means the instruction of, of, of God through Moses, the law, the Torah of Moses, the prophets, that's the next section of the Old Testament canon, and then the Psalms, and the reason he calls it the Psalms and not the writings, because Oftentimes that was the nickname for the section of the writings in the Old Testament Hebrew canon because it was the first book in the section of the writing. So there was three sections and the Sadducees said, we're going to just stick with the law of Moses. That's the important part. We don't see God's revelatory authority in the prophets or the writing too. And as that, if you read the law and you're not reading carefully and you have no clarity about what the prophets said, you may come away not being a supernaturalist. You may say all the supernatural things that happened, they happened back in Moses's Day and we can read them in a much more sane way. And I'm concerned about being respectable to the academy and to the political powers that be. And so we're not going to believe in stuff like angels or the resurrection. It's precisely what is said by Luke when he describes them in Acts 23 8. He says, The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angels, no spirits, and yet the Pharisees acknowledge them all. That was the distinction of the book of Acts. Paul got out of a jam just by remembering that. Of course, he knew it, he didn't have to remember it. That was second nature to him. And being able to say, I can solve this problem. I got the Pharisees and the Sadducees ganging up on me. I'm going to bring up the resurrection here and talk about that. And then instantly it put them at odds with each other. And that was a helpful way to diffuse a problem, not to mention to preach the truth. They had no respect for the Pharisees oral tradition. They didn't survive 70 or 135 AD. They were decimated. So we didn't have that ruling class. And you can imagine that if your concern is to be in with the ruling class and the ruling class just decimated your nation, then your your role's pretty much over. But the serious, spiritually minded Pharisees continued on and took the leadership of the of the uh, diaspora, the, the dispersed Jews of the ancient world. And we run into this group, and this is again where we have to start thinking about political powers. You got the emperors in Rome, you got the Herodians leading, and kind of pushed aside at certain times in the New Testament for the Roman governors, and you got another authority, and that's not only the high priest and the Pharisees and Sadducees, but you got the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin means to sit together, to come together, to sit together, and it was a governing. Body in Israel, and it's called in the scripture, you'll run into it called the council. When you read the word council, and they called for the council, the Pharisees called and convened the council. The council is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members, it was like the Supreme Court of the ancient world. Nicodemus was on the Sanhedrin. He was part of the council. And John 3, that Jesus shared the gospel with, our most famous verse in the Bible, was described to a guy on this Sanhedrin, the council. God so loved the world. The high priest was the presiding member. So Caiaphas was also on the Sanhedrin. As a matter of fact, this ancient arrangement from Josephus and others can be laid out like this, that they did this kind of half circle with at the head of that half circle was the high priest. I know that may be hard to see, but that number one there is the high High priest. Number two, surrounding them, that's the 70 judges, if you will, of Israel. That's the Sanhedrin. And then number three there, someone would be called in. If there was an important case in Israel, that would be the defendant. And then there'd be a couple clerks that would take notes and record everything at the front or the back case. So the Sanhedrin was called to crucify Christ. You, they had the Sanhedrin called multiple times in the book of Acts to know what to do with these preachers, these Christian preachers. But this is a very important group. Under Rome, when Rome came in, the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin had no power to execute anyone, and that's why the Sanhedrin and the council and the high priest could only send them over to the Roman officials. In that case, because Herod had fumbled the ball and wasn't leading in Judea, we had Pilate that was the one. And remember, Pilate and Caiaphas, the high priest, become friends during this whole execution of of Christ, the crucifixion. There are the Essenes, another group of leaders within the Jews, the Essenes. There's no mention of the Essenes per se, no no, no mention of of the Essenes outright. Josephus certainly talks a lot about them. Josephus, you remember, was the Roman conscripted as the Romans came in in that first century and started from the revolt on 66, 70. They took guys like Josephus who didn't want to fight. And they said, you're a smart guy. You're going to do, we're going to pay for you to be the historian. And so Josephus writes the most lengthy and detailed history of Israel outside of the Bible. And it obviously gives us more than what's in the Bible and giving us things like a description of who the Essenes were. They lived monastically. Monastically means like a monk in a monastery. I want to get away from regular life. I want to get away from the city. I want to get away from what everyone does in the marketplace. And they moved out to the desert. They didn't want to worship in the temple. You'd think, how can you be a serious Jew and, and love God and part of Judaism, and you don't sacrifice at the one spot that's been consecrated to do sacrifice. Well, because they didn't believe it was clean enough. The Pharisees, Sadducees, not interested. I mean, if they, if they weren't buying the Pharisees and thought they were polluted, there's no way they're going to touch the Sadducees. So they said, we're going to go out in the desert and we'll do our own thing. They collected a big library out there, which by the way, we happened to find a good bit of it, which we know of today is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you read the Dead Sea Scrolls. Of course, the books of the Old Testament are there. They've even said they found part of Esther, which they didn't think they had any representation of. There's a lot of crumbling crumbs in a lot of these pots and jars that they found the scrolls in. But certainly all the Old Testament was there, several copies, more copies than Psalms than anything else. And there was a lot of commentaries and then a lot of their writings that described what they were all about. And one thing they couldn't wait for, they had a lot of eschatological anticipation regarding the end of the time, and they were waiting for a kingly Messiah, just like we see in the pages of the New Testament. You probably heard this. If you not, me tell you there are some people that say, not definitively, that John the Baptist Baptist was a part of the Essene, that he must have come out of the desert as a part of that group that wasn't functioning on the temple, wasn't bringing sacrifices there. That's part of John's back. They've got a long way to go to prove that, but that's certainly bandied about as a possibility. They were very strict. If the Pharisees were strict, these guys were even stricter. And they were also truly legalistic. They wanted to do what was right as a means of being acceptable before God. The Dead Sea Scroll discovery in the 1940s is an amazing story. There's a ton of books written on it, but the one I like the best, if you want to read one book that's just fun to read. It's called The Untold Story of Qumran. The title doesn't do it justice because it seems like it's going to be a a book that is not true. (laughs) But it's uh, by John C. Trevor, who is the photographer who happened to be studying and doing his PhD as a photographer, part of his PhD on the flora and fauna of Palestine. And he was there when the Dead Sea Scrolls, after being sold, well, Mark's Monastery had them in downtown Jerusalem, and they brought these to what is now the Albright Institute to have the experts from America figure out where are these from now the monks knew that the the priests knew there they had something and it was really old and John Trevor was the first one to get them and the first one they brought him and unfurled for him was the great Isaiah scroll that when you go to Jerusalem and you go to the shrine of the book you'll see the replication of it there certainly you'll see some real Dead Sea Scrolls but a lot of replicas there as well that big Isaiah scroll that goes around in the shrine of the book which is the pot it's shaped like a pot top a jar top of the jar that was the very first one that John Trevor took a picture but he tells the story. It's a fascinating story. It's a fun read. It's not that long. It's not print anymore, but you can get it on Amazon marketplace or find a used book site online and get it. That's that's a fun book. There's pictures in it as well. I always like picture history book. There's also the zealots. Don't want to say much about the zealots other than their name says it all. They're zealous. What are they zealous for? They're zealous for Israel and they're not liking at all the Roman. So I call them the militant anti Roman freedom fighters. How about that for a title I came up with? Because that's what they were. We want freedom from Rome, and we will do whatever it takes, and we hate the Romans. That, in a a phrase, is the zealot. Maybe an oversimplification, but that's certainly the gist. Founded by Judas the Galilean, which I think is the tie in in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, speaks of that uh, as the scene of this uprising against Rome and gives a name. And uh, I think that's as good a a hint as we've got about the origins of that. Any loyalty to Caesar was absolutely sinful, so they didn't pay their taxes. They were asking the question there of Christ right before we stopped our study and now going to pick it up this weekend in Luke. And. part of that was I'm sure there were zealots standing by going there's no possible way you better say that we're going to give taxes to Rome. It was a catch-22 kind of question. Total revolutionary. There was an apostle named Simon not the Simon Peter that we're used to having first on the list but the other Simon and the other Simon is called Simon the Zealot. He was a part of this revolutionary gang. Now he wasn't a revolutionary when he was with Christ because Christ had made it clear my kingdom is not of this world. If it were he tells Pilate we would fight. Paul said the weapons of our warfare he says to the Corinthians are not you know the weapons of this world, they're they're powerful for breaking down arguments, destroying logical stronghold. So the past that he had didn't matter. You had a traitor that was collecting taxes like Levi or Matthew. You had Simon a zealot who was kind of a, a militant freedom fighter. Christ takes that varied band of people and creates a movement that you're now part of. It started with very imperfect people. I think that's encouragement to us, isn't it? There's God fearers and proselytes, another thing that makes us I mean, encourages us. Converts from the Gentiles who who support and love israel and they are their converts their converts perhaps not all the way, not all of them are, but they are, you know, they may not be fully engaged in all of the circumcision and the dietary restrictions, but many of them were. There's a spectrum there. Judaism attracted Romans because certainly it's a better option in Judaism that you had in the first century than you've got in any of the Roman mystery religion or uh, the early forms of Gnosticism or emperor worship or the pantheon of the Greco-Roman gods. Cornelius is one that we meet in Acts chapter 10, and he's called uh, this God fear, right? He says, it's described this way. Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man feared God in his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Here's a guy from the outside that is ripe for conversion. So Peter is sent, as you remember in Acts 10, to go win the first Italian to Christ. Judaism and New Testament times, of course, met in the synagogue, kind of like the Sanhedrin. Synagogue means a place where you gather together, a congregation. Of course, in the ancient world, before church was here and established, you had a similar place. Matter of fact, the church was modeled after the synagogue a place to study the word to read to worship it arose after the destruction of the first temple when Nebuchadnezzar in 586 destroyed the temple you didn't have a place to worship you had to gather together synagogues even in Babylon or Assyria or in the decimated ruins of Jerusalem and Israel and have a place to worship you didn't have a temple you built your own and of course as money came back into Israel they would build nice looking synagogues here's one in Capernaum and it's like and if you go to Israel you'll certainly visit this one you'll visit one in Chorazin which which is all made of black basalt. You'll visit this one in the remains of it in uh, Capernaum, Jesus' hometown. But it's a great passage there where Jesus, you can picture in his hometown in Nazareth, he takes the scroll, he reads from Isaiah 61, he rolled up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's like the church service. You didn't have one singular preacher, you had one primary guy, but you would have other people come up, read scripture, people could comment on it. That was a dramatic scene in in the temple of Nazareth that was probably a lot like this, perhaps not as ornate as the Capernaum synagogue. You certainly had a rise in synagogues all throughout Israel after the destruction of the second temple, which is in 70 AD. The rabbis claimed, and though this seems like an exaggeration, they claimed there were 450 synagogues in Jerusalem at the time of the destruction of the city. That is amazing. Central in the life of Judaism. Just like I hope church is central in your life. That is our spiritual identity. This is our corporate identity, and certainly in Old Testament, Israel moving into the intertestamental period and the first century. This is where people hung out. It's where their relationships were. Their friendships were. It's where they studied the word and worshiped together. Testament geography. As we go through Acts and we go through the Gospels, we'll spend much more time looking at these kinds of maps. We have room for them, but just at least identify on this map. I didn't put any names on it. I tried to pick a map that didn't have them, but just up here to the northwest of the Dead Sea is the city of Jerusalem. That's where all the activity and the drama that we're about to start studying again in Luke 22, as we get back to our series this weekend, all of it unfolds here in the South. And of course, Jesus had a, a ministry in the South, but most of his ministry, Samaria area is in between Jerusalem and the hometown of Jesus which is up here in Galilee. Galilee is where he's raised in a city of Nazareth. Capernaum is where he lives as his headquarters during his ministry. In between was Samaria. He marched right through the middle of Samaria when most Jews wouldn't, so that he could share the gospel with a woman at the well in Sychar, among other people. But you remember the Samaritans were the intermarried northern tribes that the Jews hated because they intermarried with foreigners. So the northern part of this, if you look closely here, you can see Nazareth is almost halfway between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. If you look right here, Canaan, Cana rather, Canaan, Cana is the city he did his his first miracle in. See, it's not far at all. That's about eight miles away, seven miles away. And then you have his hometown during his ministry. Matter of fact, you go to Capernaum and you will, if you're going this summer with Pastors PJ, Pastor Pete, you're going to walk into Capernaum. They got a sign there. that says the hometown of, of Jesus. Before that, it was the hometown of Nahum, of the Old Testament. Kaffer Nahum is the, the, the home of Nahum of the Old Testament. That sea right there, Sea of Galilee, you need to know it's also called Gennesaret and Kinnereth in the Bible. Kinnereth and Gennesaret mean the same thing. Harp. Can you see it kind of looks like a harp? It's eight miles across, 13 miles long. It's 64 square miles of water. Its maximum depth, if you just go down and a little bit to the left, it just gets real deep there. Fairly deep for a lake like that, 141 feet deep. The lake itself, it's at lake level, is 700 feet below sea level. It is the lowest freshwater lake in the world and the second lowest body of water in the entire world. The lowest body of water below sea level in the world is where? Dead Sea, and it's connected to the Jordan River. It's uh, fed by underground springs. Lake Hula is just north of that. It all flows south. The ancient world, we won't take much time on this. This is a modern overlay of it, just to give you a sense. Here's Israel, of course, down in the corner. And Here is Rome. You can get a sense of the distance there. It's probably about a thousand miles, I'm guessing. No, no. Yeah, about a thousand miles and dirty. Paul makes these journeys. This is his third journey here. Ship, transportation. Well, there's lots of roads. Did you get that Roman transportation? Letter A, life in the Old Testament times. Here's the ancient world now. I mean, the the Near East now. Here's the network of Roman roads in the first century. Just take a look at that. I mean, they're not interstates, but they were pretty impressive. Fifteen feet wide, they were bricked and paved with what we might see as pavers today. Some of them still survived. The famous one, Appian Way, from Rome down south. I mean, these are just remarkable engineering achievements of the ancient world. And you can see what God was doing in bringing Christ and the gospel to this world at just the right time. Not only do we have a great exacting language to write the New Testament in, Koine Greek, but we had extensive roads to take the gospel. And we had what historians call Pax Romana. Pax Romana means the peace of Rome, which is, even though it was a lot of bad stuff happening here and there, relatively, relative peace politically for the early church to get the message of the gospel out. All right, I gave you all that info. If you were poor, you walked. If you're middle class, you could get a donkey. If you're upper class, you can get a horse or a mule. If you were rich, you get a chariot, carriage If some time to say all that. Let's move on. When you go to Israel, this is transportation, a lot of boats, and there was very good boat builders back then. As a matter of fact, they found one. As you go to the Sea of Galilee, you're going to see this ancient boat that comes from the first century time. They've tried to reconstruct it, and here's a kind of a a reconstruction of what the Boats looked like on the Sea of Galilee. You had ships on the Mediterranean, merchant ships, all kinds of merchants. And there are places. I think this one's actually on Ephesus uh, or near Ephesus, near the, or Greece. I'm not sure where. The, nevertheless, there's another kind of, of replica of the ancient boats. Here's a depiction of the ancient boats. They not only sailed with sails, but they also had galley slaves that would row with these gigantic like oars that looked like telephone poles. Tons of ships on the Mediterranean, powered by sails and oars. Large ships could carry. Believe this or not, Alexandria was one of the great shipbuilders of the ancient world, up to 1,200 people, historians tell it. Money, we don't have time for this either, but at least you need to know there was three categories of money in the Bible. There's Roman money. You know these words, denarius. Here's the denarius, the inscription of Tiberius on it, or the depiction of Tiberius. Quadrans, aserions, copper coins. Assyrian is the Greek word that's used of the Roman monetary amount when it talks about two sparrows are sold for a penny. That's a 16th of a day's wage, two sparrows you could buy on the Temple Mount. That's probably from the 2nd century BC. See that depict. You had Roman money, you had Greek money. Now, this doesn't come up as much as Roman money when you hear denarius all the time, but you'll hear drachma, and we came up against that in the book of Luke, the drachma. A drachma was just like a denarius in that it was the equivalent of a day's wage for a laborer or a worker. But the way they described it in Greece was it was a sheep's price. You work all day, you get a you get you get a sheep. die Drachma, that makes sense. Temple tax, two days' wage. The stater was four days' wage. That was the one found in the mouth of the fish. The mina, you might remember, talked about in the Mina, it sounds small, uh, like a mite, but it's not. It's big. That's a hundred days' wage. A talent in the Greek world that was six thousand days' wage. These are all silver monetary units. Then there's one more. The Hebrews. So We had Greek roman and hebrew monetary and there's only one reference to that in scripture and it's the most famous one the lepton in greek from hebrew and that's translated mite in the old king james that was the smallest coin and we call it the widow's mite because she puts the mite in the shofar the horned box and if you go to israel you can actually i mean you can get these real widow's mites from back coin dealers but they'll sell all kinds of replicas of those and necklaces and earrings and all kinds of things. but it is kind of cool it's the one and they sell them a lot i think in israel as opposed to drach or denariuses, although any, you can buy those any coin people, but because this is their one biblical Hebrew coin scripture. Taxes, tons of taxes preached on this not long ago. Romans would want 1% annual tax. You'd have to have two drachma, the di drachma for the temple tax. Every tax collector was skimming. You had to bid to become a tax collector for Rome. And of course, once you were authorized with Roman soldiers standing beside you, you could pretty much get whatever you could get away with asking for. You had to pay Rome, whatever they wanted, and you got everything else. Poll tax, sales tax, toll taxes for roads, property taxes, crop taxes, tons of taxes. If you think you have it bad, probably do, but they had it bad too. If you were a Jew, on top of that, the Jewish tithes, you had two annual tithes that you had to have and one triennial tithe. So if you lived under Rome, you had all these extra taxes on top of what you had just being a Jewish person trying to pay your tithe every year. And then your second tithe, which you had two tithes, one's for the family, the Levites, one's for the operation of the temple. Then you had on top of that, the drachma tax for the remodeling of the temple. You had the triennial tax, which is a social security tax. So you weren't going home with much of your paycheck then either. It was a lot of tax population. There's probably two to three million people in Israel in the first century. Interestingly enough, there were more Jews that lived in Syria up north. There were more Jews that lived in Alexandria, Egypt down south. Lots of Jews that lived in Rome at the time. So they were spread out. Of course, during the period of 135 to 1946, and even today, although the Zionist movement to put the Israelites back in the land to have them go or people being called back to the land has been just Just like it was then, there's more Jews living outside of Israel than living inside of. Let me end with this, longevity. You need to remember this. If you try to telegraph your own thinking about a lifespan on the biblical time frame, it's not helpful. Researchers say, based on skeletal remains that are found from the time period, that a man would live as an, on an average of 40 years. That was the expected average life. Women, sorry to say, unlike our day, you're not going to live longer than us. 34 years was the average age for a female. Now think about that in the first century. Now go back to 4 or 5 BC birth, and you get a death at what I believe is 33 AD or 30 AD, then you've got either a 37-year-old Jesus dying on a cross or a 39-year-old Jesus dying on a cross. The average lifespan was 40 years in the first century. if you think, wow, you know, why did he die so young? He lived his whole life in your place. You see what I'm saying? He lived his life from being a child and a kid and a pre-adolescent and an adolescent, teenager, young adult, adult. He lived it all. And he died right about the time that you would expect a person to die, uh, in the first century. As we read in our daily Bible reading, was that not today? He lived for us and died for us. He became sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Just that one tidbit may be something to take home today and think, wow, yeah, he lived his whole life what the expectation of a lifespan was at first. All right. Trying to get close to ending at 807. It's 810, so that was pretty close. We're finally going to get to the gospels next week. I think I promised, I didn't promise, but I said I'd probably get to the gospel tonight. I probably didn't say probably, but I didn't make it. Next week though, Lord willing will be in the gospels. Let's pray, God. So much for us to consider as we think about Your Word and the context in which it was given to us. I pray this historical background and leadership, people in charge, and taxes and life and transportation, and that we would stop thinking, as we often are tempted to think, that those days were so much different than they are now. I mean, you think about the the gains in terms of architecture, and even some of these cities had plumbing and sewage systems, entertainment and temptations in the in the entertainment of their day and the 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 chariot races and the, all the immorality going on in leadership, and the uh, extortion, the, the political problems. It's just all those things that every person in the first century was grappling with, not a whole lot different. Oh, sure, it was a different context, but God, help us to recognize as we read your word. It's 2,000 years removed as we read the New Testament, but and it is so relevant and it is so applicable because all the human issues that we deal with are still there and present in the lives of people that heard Jesus stand there by the shores of the Sea of Galilee and preach or on the side of that mountain there on the Mount of Beatitudes, giving us the Sermon on the Mount, or being out on a boat and giving directions to Peter and James and John about life principles. I pray all these things that we read would be just growing alive and coming off the page for us as we open up our Bibles. Thank you, God, for this quick, broad, historical overview. Give us greater insight as we dig into the Gospels as a whole next week. I pray it would even help us as we think through our study, our verse-by-verse study of Luke as we get back into that this week. We can't wait for that. I can't wait for that. thank you that we get to finish that book up and move toward the, the climax of the book. Thanks for this crowd and their willingness to study your word. Dismiss us now with a sense of your, your favor upon us. Thanks for the good days that we're in the middle of here with Compass 2020. Bring great success to this endeavor that your name might be honored by this generation of Christian companies.